Good evening, Rua Church. Uh, I'm Alexander. I'm one of the pastors here as well. And I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Uh, Luke chapter 11, your Bible, we're going to be in the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 11 today. And once you have found that text, I want to invite you to stand and join me for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can be seated. So you'll remember uh, last week in our time together, uh, we took a little bit of time looking at the prayer that Jesus gives to his disciples as a model of prayer. And we at that time discussed that, while, while often in church history it's referred to as the Lord's Prayer, and I think rightly so, in many senses it's, it's the prayer given to the disciples, it's the disciples' prayer that they pray uh, in, in reverence to God, in communion to God, and really as a lifeblood of, of discipleship. Well, in that, in that time last week, we, we discussed much about, let's say, the content of prayer, what we pray, and, and, and what is the theology undergirding our prayer life. Uh, and we, we didn't touch much on really the rest of what Luke gets into when, he, when it gets into praying, uh, which is really spelled out through the end of verse 13 in this section. And that's, that's getting more into not what we pray, uh, but why do we pray? What is our motivation for prayer? Uh, if you were to ask yourself, what, what reason do I have to go before the Lord and pray? Uh, what, what would your answer be? And, and Luke, in his account, uh, in, in first a, a parable from Jesus and then an explanation, and then an, another kind of pictorial representation, uh, Jesus gives his disciples two motivations uh, of why they should have, let's say, confidence or reason to go before the Lord in prayer. So this week, we're just going to be looking through verse 10, and we're going to be looking at one of those motivations to pray. And next week, we'll look at the other motivation. The motivation summed uh, through from verse 5 all the way through uh, the end of verse 10 uh, is, is, is a motive of, of desperation. Uh, the reason you should pray is because, well, you need it. You're desperate for help from God. And that first motivation to pray is spelled out in, in a very interesting representation. Starting in verse 5, he asks them one long question that is broken up over, uh, well, three verses. 
And uh, we almost lose the question in the story because within the question, he, he tells us a story. And the question uh, starts with the, the statement, friend, or, or sorry, who of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, and now there's this dialogue. And so he's asking the question, who of you will go to a friend and when you ask your friend for help, the friend will tell you, no, go away and go to sleep. But rather, because of your word there is impudence, uh, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So the question that Jesus is asking is, how many of you have friends that when you would ask them for help at midnight in an hour of desperation, the friend wouldn't just help you out, right? And now we can discern the friend's motivation or not, but the question is, Jesus is saying, out of your desperation, who of you wouldn't ask a friend for help? And so the, the argument then in the text is, well, uh, if we are desperate, let's say in this, in this illustration as a host who needs bread to host someone well and faithfully at midnight, if we're desperate in that kind of a way, how much more desperate are we as disciples in need of help uh, from, from our Lord? You'll recognize uh, this argument is an argument from the lesser to the greater, which means uh, if, if, you, if you would ask a friend for help uh, in, a, in an earthly circumstance or situation in which it's really uh, a question of being a good host, uh, how much more would you need to ask for help in a situation which would require you to be a good disciple, right? If you're going to be a good host and you're going to ask for help in that situation, why wouldn't you ask for help in a scenario that requires you to be a faithful disciple? The whole uh, interpretation of this text hinges around one word, and it's often not the case that that, that happens in a text of scripture where, where one word really flips the meaning or changes or alters or drastically uh, shifts the thrust of any statement from Jesus. Um, but in this case, there is one word, and depending on what English translation you have in front of you, uh, this word is translated in all sorts of different ways. So it's in, in verse 8, uh, it's when Jesus is giving the explanation, and he says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his something, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, if you're looking at an English translation in front of you, you could have any number of, of renderings there. Uh, you could have the word impudence. If you have an ESV, that's what what's my ESV says. Uh, but you could also have uh, shameless boldness, importunity, shamelessness, shameless audacity, persistence, or shameless persistence. And that's just from a survey of popular English translations, not even all the possible renderings. The, the real question we should be asking is, what is Jesus's point when he's saying that, uh, that this person has, uh, what is Jesus's, let's say, application in terms of what this friend is asking for? Why is, the, why is the request being answered? Is it because of the person's persistence that the request is being answered? The person going to his friend at midnight and knocking and he's a persistent, it's a persistent request. Some translations do, do say persistence. Uh, what is the motivation? What's Jesus getting at? I think, although persistence is uh, an English translation, I don't think it's the best rendering of, of this term. Um, the term impudence, I think, is better, but if, you don't, if you're like me and you don't know what that word means in, in English, you've got to go look it up anyway. It's not really helpful. Um, something to the effect of one of those other translations, a shameless boldness or a shameless audacity or uh, a certain kind of uh, shamelessness in, in the request. The thrust is not on a persistent kind of requesting, although Luke does emphasize persistence in prayer elsewhere in the text. The, the point of this passage, though, is not to tell us about persistence in prayer. It's, about, it's to tell us about a certain shamelessness in prayer, a certain kind of beggar's posture that we should have before God when we come to him in prayer. And, and this, is, this is the thrust of the term uh, that's translated in English, impudence, but translated in a host of other ways. 
the, the point is, out of our desperation for help from God, uh, we should be shameless in the request that we ask for. Much like a man who goes to his friend at midnight uh, and his friend is sleeping. Uh, and and in, in, the, in that culture, if you're sleeping, uh, you're, you're not sleeping in a, in a five bedroom house where you can wake up one person sleeping in one bedroom. If you're waking up somebody, you're waking up the whole family, right? Everyone sleeps in the same room, usually on the same mat. You even see that in the text where the, the friend would respond and say, the children are in bed with me, they're, they're sleeping, right? We're all asleep, the whole family's here. Imagine the kind of shamelessness you have to have to go to someone in the middle of the night, knock on their door, wake them up, wake the whole family up, get them all riled up and say, hey, I had a friend visiting in town. Could you lend me some bread? Because I don't have any bread. Would you be willing to do that? There's a certain kind of, let's say, audacity that you have to have to go to someone and ask for that kind of thing. Now, it's culturally justified because being a good host is a, a central aspect of what it means to be a good Jew, right? So they're, they're saying, of course, of course we would ask for help in this kind of way. Even though it's shameful for us, we're going to have a shameless posture because being a bad host is worse. Uh, being a bad host is, is worse than being shameless in your request for help. Well, being a bad disciple is worse than being shameless in your request for help to be a good disciple of Jesus. A disciple needs to recognize, remember, this, this is all about, okay, what, is the, what does prayer serve and then how do we pray? What is our motive to pray? Being a good disciple is all about recognizing your desperate need for help in prayer. You, ha you have to have a certain shamelessness about you to regularly go before God and ask for help for all manner of things. One of the main reasons we don't pray uh, or don't pray as we ought to or as consistently as we ought to uh, is, is one, we, we sometimes don't know the words to say, and we, we kind of talked about that last week. What are guardrails for how we pray? But one of the other driving reasons, at least in our culture, that we don't pray is we don't really feel desperate enough to pray. Uh, we, we think, you know, there's high demands of discipleship, but they're within our capacity or within our strength to undertake. Uh, we don't need to necessarily be asking for things all the time from God, we don't have the certain urgency and shamelessness that we ought to have, that a disciple should have, if they're going to go to the Lord in prayer as they should. Now, the argument is, is, is straightforward, right? You need to be shameless in your request. That's the, that's the thrust of that question, right? Uh, any, anyone who's going to go to his neighbor and wake him up in the middle of the night is going to have a shamelessness about them. And let's say the, the response from, from Jesus, the application is, the friend is going to answer the request of his neighbor, not because he's his friend, but because of the shamelessness, because he's, he's now put this guy in a bad spot where he's got to wake up. And it's because of the shamelessness of the request that he's going to answer the request, not even because they're friends. Well, think about this as an argument from God's character to human character. If uh, an annoyed neighbor will respond to a request that you ask for shamelessly, how much more would a loving father respond to a request that you would ask for him shamelessly? A, a loving father is, is not annoyed with you. Uh, he's actually willing to give you the response that, well, that you're asking for. Uh, how can we go with the kind of confidence that God wants to respond to the request that we have? Well, he's told us how to pray in, in the previous four verses. And, and those guide, guidelines for prayer tell us a lot about prayer. But one of the things they tell us is we pray the things that God has promised to give us already. And so why would we have any doubt that God is willing and, and desires to respond and answer those requests? If you think about this, if you, if you were to pray that, that prayer or within the guardrails of that prayer, 
asking God for his name to be holy, for his kingdom to come, for him to provide daily sustenance for his people, for him to forgive our sins, and for him to not allow us to be led into trials or temptations. Well, why would God not want to respond to those requests? He, he's told us to pray this way, so we have a certain confidence. And then Jesus takes the argument one step further and says, and not only are you praying for all the right things theologically, but also your posture for prayer is a certain desperation that if you don't get these things from God, there's nowhere else to get them from. If you go to God and you try to live the disciples' life, carry your cross daily without the grace of God, without his power living and breathing and moving through you, well, you're, you're unaware of how hard of a life it is to be a disciple, to daily die to sin and live to Christ. Well, who won't need the grace of God regularly through prayer to do that kind of thing? And that's not even all that we're called to do. We're not just called to not sin. We're also called to live in holy obedience to God, which, which, which requires us to do all kinds of things that our natural self doesn't want to do. And so we have to have a certain gall, a certain shamelessness about us to ask God for the things that we need because we need them urgently. And until we understand our, our desperate state before God, we won't really pray as we ought to. Until the neighbor's friend came to him at midnight and he realized the predicament that he was in, he wasn't going to his friend for help. He wasn't going to go ask for bread. Why would he, right? He's got his pride intact. He's, but when he realizes the need that he has, he goes to his friend and asks shamelessly and without any kind of reservations. Well, that's what a disciple needs to be like before Jesus. They need to go to him with that kind of desperate posture. If you think about this, uh, I think this, this illustration is guarded by other illustrations that we have in scripture. We know that God is our father and we have a loving familial relationship with him, okay? But I think the idea of us coming to God as beggars before him is a good idea of what we should be like when we come to him in prayer. Not that our chief identity is beggars, we are sons of, of God, but a beggar, I think in our culture, is a good posture of how desperate we really need to be when we go before God. If you were to uh, drive anywhere in Indianapolis and you stop at a stop sign or you, you come to certain intersections, you'll find people on the side of the road who have signs up or who will go up and knock on your car window and ask you for gas money or, or all manner of things, right? And they don't care. They don't care what you think of them. They, they either need food or gas or, or whatever, and they will ask anyone and everyone for help until they get it. There's a certain shamelessness about that, right? You just, you just need to be in a certain desperate state to be knocking on people's windows and asking them for, for help that way. Well, that's someone who needs financial assistance or, uh, or financial su sustenance um, for, for a temporary life that they're living and really for the next meal that they're getting. And think about the high call of discipleship that Luke has finished laying out for us in, in all of chapter 9. And you think about that high call of discipleship, and then you, you turn and you think, well, we are really in desperate need of God's help if we're going to live that thing out faithfully. There's no way for us to fulfill the mandate of being a faithful disciple apart from God's intervention daily and hourly and minute by minute into our lives to help us to work this thing out. If, if we could do it on our own strength, on our own merit, why would we need to pray? Uh, we wouldn't. We would just kind of be set in motion and go do it, and we, we would carry it out, right? Prayer would be more of a formality and not a, a needful thing for us to do. But look at the, the requests of the Lord's Prayer. He says, you address God as Father, 
And then you, you say, let your name be holy, let your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread. Give, a, give us daily the bread that we need, the, the bread that we require. There's a certain neediness to that request, right? You, you're acknowledging a need before God. And if you're going to acknowledge a need that desperate, well, you have to have a certain kind of awareness about yourself that if you don't ask God for help in this way, you're at risk of not having this need met. There's a certain posture, a certain beggar's mentality to that, a certain shamelessness. And, and so it is with, with all the requests that we can ask of God in our discipleship lives. If you think about all of the things that God calls us to do and all of the things that we struggle with in terms of sin, and you think about how we try to usually go about dealing with sin, self-discipline, uh, self-promises, uh, all, all kinds of willpower and motivation. There's, a, there's all, all ways that we try to employ to deal with sin. And then you think about, well, all of those things are sometimes good and well-motivated, but sometimes they're a means of us disguising the actual desperate condition that we're in, the actual need that we have. You have to come to a certain place to look yourself in the mirror and say, I cannot do this apart from the strength of God. You have to hit a certain low. Sometimes for us that happens at the moment of conversion where we're aware of all of our lowliness and, and that is really what conversion is, the, the weight of us being brought to that state where we cry out to God and help. But sometimes there's, there's certain vestiges of, of sin in our lives where we, where we don't fully acknowledge how desperate we are in this lane or in that lane before God. And then all of a sudden we recognize how impoverished we really are and become once again as beggars before God. And I would say that that is the right kind of response to have when you go to God in prayer. What, what is the thing that prevents us most from having that shameless posture? Well, I think, uh, at least for us in the West, it's, it's a discipleship that we've been ingrained in with our whole lives, which is some combination of self-sustenance and pride and a certain arrogance or a lack of touch with actual reality. We live in a world that tells us that we can be functionally atheist as we go about our lives. And although we can believe God for morality or believe in him as some kind of deity who's off in the distance, who gives us a moral structure for society and generally makes us feel good or hope for the future, uh, we don't necessarily need to rely on him daily in order to live as people who are obedient to God. The general thrust of even regular church attendees is to think of themselves as generally good. In fact, if uh, Ligonier does this survey where they regularly, I think it's every year, they interview people uh, and they ask them a whole host of questions. And it's, it's all kind of responders and you can narrow the responses in a bunch of different ways. But if you, if you were just to narrow the responses to that survey down to people who profess to be evangelical and attend church, not once a week, but multiple times a week, if you were to sift it down all the way to that and you were to ask the question, generally are people good before God? 42% of people would respond and say, yes, I think people are generally good before God. And that's not people who never go to church. That's people who regularly attend evangelical churches. Churches that are supposed to be founded on the idea that the gospel is that we are desperate before God and we need him or else we have no hope. And people will go regularly through their lives thinking that we're oh, actually, we're not, we're not doing so bad before God. And I think that informs, well, why as a culture do we not pray? We don't think of ourselves as bad enough to need help from outside. So we don't pray. If, uh, there's all kinds of shocking things that are revealed by something like that. 
Namely that people who profess to uphold the Bible as their ruling authority for life will simultaneously turn around and deny almost every implication of the biblical worldview, such as that man is in a desperate state before God. And this is not uh, saying sinners are in a desperate state before God. Certainly they are. But even disciples are in a desperate state before God. Not in the same way as a sinner is. A sinner is in a desperate state because they are uh, still in their sin. They have no justification. They have no merit before a holy God. They have no hope. But a disciple is in a desperate state in a different kind of way because discipleship is hitching ourselves to the lifeblood of Jesus. And we're desperate because if he stops giving, we're dead. So, so we're desperate in the fact that we are constantly in need of being engrafted into, unified with Christ for our very existence, for the living out of discipleship. It's a, it's a desperation, different kind of desperation, but it's, it's a certain kind of desperation nevertheless. And I think often it's the case where we look at ourselves as being not as desperate as the world is because we are justified before God. And yes, there's a certain sense in which as Christians, we, we don't have that same urgency and desperation because we are found in Christ. But that mentality doesn't get us very far because how can you live the life of a disciple without regular reliance on God's spirit for carrying out all of the commands of being a disciple? We remember reading the parable just a couple of weeks ago of, of the Good Samaritan, how Jesus calls us to love our neighbors. Think about how, how could you possibly do that? Look at other people and love them rightly from a pure heart and pure motive, unless God works in you and through you and in your heart to actually love people well. We can love people for selfish reasons, for all kinds of sinful motivations. We can do it if we're going to get on TV or get recognition or if it'll help us with some career in the future, some job. It's very rare, I would say impossible, in our natural self to do a loving thing from a perfectly pure heart and motive. It's just because that's how desperate we are. And if we are confused as disciples into thinking that once we have Jesus, we're somehow zapped into being holy, and we don't need a regular abiding persistence in Christ in order to live out the life of a disciple, we are confused. We don't understand what it is to go before the Lord and beseech him regularly in prayer. The, the very nature of the prayer that Jesus gives to his disciples is one that has this tone of daily persistence in it, right? He says, you're going to go to God every day, address him as father, and you're going to ask him for daily bread, for the regular forgiveness of sins, and for the regular grace to not be led into temptation. And all of those requests that we ask for from God are things that we will need on a daily basis to ask from God, because we're in daily need of God protecting us from those things and forgiving us of our sins and cleansing us and purifying us and working out our salvation within us. There's a, a daily life of being a disciple that we, we often forget about. I think as disciples, we're, we're, so, uh, we're so transfixed on justification, which is a good focus, by the way, that we, as soon as we think of ourselves as being justified before God, righteous, and, and we, are, we are carrying now Christ's righteousness on us because of the imputation of our sins onto him and his righteousness onto us. We think of that and we think, okay, now we're done. We can just coast through this life under the grace of God, no further demands. But that would be to ignore all of the other requests and commands from God for his disciples to be loving, to engage in this world in a way that actually impacts the world, to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens, 
to love one another, to grow in holiness and pursue sanctification. All of those things that we're required to do as disciples is something that we could not do if we ever detached ourselves from the lifeblood of Christ. It would be a foolish endeavor to try to do that kind of thing on our own strength. And so we need to have the kind of posture as disciples that this man has when he goes to his friend in the middle of the night and with a kind of shameless, boldness, audacious claim, he says, give me bread so I can feed my friend. And we need to be like that with God, not only like that in our posture, but also with a certain confidence that God is not like the friend that he's annoyed when we wake him up, but God doesn't sleep. He's not distracted. He actually has a careful ear turned into his people and he loves to answer their requests. So we go not only with a desperation, but we also go with a confidence that God is our father and that he loves to hear us. This is the very first address in the disciples' prayer, Father, hallowed be your name. We have a certain ear with God that we are afforded by Jesus' life and death, and we should take advantage of that. We should be bold in our claims before God, and we should also be aware of our need as well. I think both of these things are, are thrust home to us in the parable. Now, if you think about how this plays out uh, in terms of the application that Jesus goes on with a little bit uh, past uh, his application in verse 8, if you look at verse 9 and 10, you'll see kind of a universal statement from Jesus that is rooted in the parable he, he just told. Verse 9, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and to the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Think, look at all those confident, 100% guaranteed statements. If there was ever a time for Jesus to say, you know, sometimes I answer prayer, sometimes I don't, this would be the time to clarify that. But if you look at it, there's a certain 100% accuracy that Jesus gives in these requests. I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find it. Knock, and it will be open to you. These are promises that Jesus gives to his disciples. Why does he give this kind of promise? Surely we could point to our life and experience and the things that we've asked God for in the past and say, well, he hasn't done it for me in the past, so this must be a, a proverbial statement or generally true, not 100% true. But I think if we were to look at this text closely and look at it in thrust of the whole of verses 1 through 10, you would see that these requests, when we pray them to God, are always answered by God. If you look at the requests, just to review that, that prayer, let your name be made holy, let your kingdom come, give us the day, this day the bread that we need, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who are indebted to us, and lead us not into trials or temptations. If you, if you look at all of those requests, and then you get to skip over everything else and go straight to verse 9, and he says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. He's, he's giving you a certain guarantee. When you ask in this kind of way for these kinds of things, it will be given to you. If you seek these kinds of things, you will find them. If you knock in this kind of way, it will be open to you. Now, we get into trouble in a lot of ways. One of the ways we get into trouble is we don't ask for these kinds of things. Sometimes in prayer, whether it's because of our own misguided thoughts about prayer or perhaps uh, uh, our own foolishness or our own short-sightedness, 
We ask for God for things in prayer that he doesn't guide us into asking for in prayer. And here, he's, he's giving us guardrails of things we can ask for that he will always answer. The promise exists for the requests in, in the Lord's Prayer, not, not the things that we just request anything of God for. Because the Lord's Prayer guards us from asking for things that would combat God's nature. We can't ask, for example, for God to increase sin in the world because he's not going to answer that request. It, uh, even if you ask for that, he won't give it to you. Why? Because it's not in the enumerated list of things he said are okay to ask for. But on the flip side, if it is in the things that God has told us we can't ask for, we can approach that request with a 100% confidence that we, he will answer it. Now then the question, the second, I think, way we can get off is, is we can start to be concerned or think, well, I do ask for the kinds of things God tells us here to ask for, but I still don't hear the answer to those prayers. And then we must confess, often it is the case, that we don't expect God often to answer prayers in the way that he does. We discussed this a little bit last week, but when we, even if we think about that last request, lead us not into temptation, God can answer that request in a 100% accurate way without always fulfilling our expectation of what it looks like to be delivered from temptation. Sometimes we are delivered from the temptation itself. Sometimes we are delivered from the situation of temptation. Sometimes we are delivered into eternal life in which we will face no more temptation. There's a whole host of ways God can answer that prayer and still be a faithful and good God. And if you apply that to any of the requests, you can see there's so many ways God could answer those prayers. And often when we say, well, God hasn't answered the prayer, what we really mean is he hasn't answered the prayer in the specific way that I thought he would or must answer the prayer that I asked of him. We ask God to give us each day our daily bread. That's not a prayer for us to have financial flourishing for this life and forevermore. But often we think that if God really is going to answer the prayer of giving us daily sustenance, what that means is a deep savings account and a perfectly stable job and all, all these things. But it doesn't necessarily mean that. He could, that could be a way that God blesses you and answers that prayer. He could also make you so desperate on him that you are still living paycheck to paycheck under his providence for his glory. He can do that. Now that's different than a category of where we uh, live paycheck to paycheck because of our own foolishness and financial spending. But sometimes God keeps us in a certain place to keep us dependent on him. I know people who have health problems to an extent where they need to daily ask God for sustenance in terms of pain management, pain tolerance, and just to persist into the next day. And God can sometimes put us into a condition where that's the kind of daily sustenance we need. For others of us, he daily sustains us by not giving us pain in that same kind of way. The point is, he doesn't have to answer the request in a narrow kind of way that we often think, if he doesn't answer it this way, it doesn't count. God is fully capable of answering our requests and always fulfilling his obligation to sustain and protect us and keep us as his people. So when we ask, it will be given to us. We will have these requests met. When we seek God, we will find him in this way. Now that verse, verse 9, uh, seek and you will find, is so often taken out of its context and it's applied to people who are not disciples of Christ. And we say that there's a world of people out there who are seeking after God and so they will find him. But scripture tells us elsewhere that no one seeks after God. So this, this, this scripture is applying in a very narrow sense to disciples who seek after God 
because they've been converted. They love God, so they seek him. They seek his kingdom. They seek his good. These are the people who are guaranteed to find God and comfort within him. There's not just a universal statement that anyone who looks to be seeking the things of God is indeed seeking God. Oh, one of the old uh, church historians uh, and, and really theologians of church history uh, observed that the, really the main reason people appear to be seeking after God who are really not seeking after God is because they seek the things that God can offer them without going to God himself for them. So they seek hope and happiness and sufficiency and comfort and all these things, but they seek it apart from God. And so we confuse that with them seeking God himself. There's no one who seeks God apart from a, a work of the spirit on their hearts for them to be converted and awakened to their desperate state and then to seek after God. And moreover, the whole context of this verse is within uh, an answer to a disciple about how a disciple ought to pray. So the promise is to disciples that if you ask, it will be given to you. If you seek, you will find it. And if you knock, it will be open to you. That's no doubt a reference to the parable he's just told. If you're going to knock on that door at midnight shamelessly. The door will be opened. You'll have your request met. It's an amazing kind of promise that God gives us in the text of Scripture. But it requires, I think, a lot of us as disciples before we're going to get to a state where we're here in our prayer lives. And the biggest hurdle to overcome is the fact that we don't consider ourselves as desperate as we really are. We don't, we don't think of ourselves rightly. We don't think of ourselves and see ourselves as God sees us. And so we are often underplaying and minimizing how desperate we really are before a holy God. There's a whole host of ways this can play out. But if, if you were just to think about sin and how shameful and wicked your sin is before God, if you're a disciple and you are walking with Christ and let's say you fall into sin or you fall into temptation and you, you give in, you give over to that sin. And some of us feel guilty or convicted in a moment and then five minutes later we're as if nothing ever happened. There's no, let's say, abiding sense of desperation. But moreover, we don't actually think of our individual sins as all that problematic because it'd be very rare for someone in the West to think of their sins as so problematic that they would be unable to go before a holy God. And yet, that's really the, the predicament that we're in unless Christ were to intervene for us and, and intercede for us on, on our behalf. Because every time we sin, we fall short of God's glory, short of his standard, and we deserve eternal separation from him. And yet Christ, on a daily basis, regularly intercedes for us on our behalf. Uh, if we sin, we have a great high priest who is an advocate before God, before the Father, so that we can have confidence to approach him. Were it not for that daily intervention of Jesus, the active intercession of Jesus, we would have no hope. But the point is, if we really understood the active intercession of Jesus, we would be more desperate when we consider our own sin. Because we would recognize it's not as though we're all good and all that lovely that God has sought us and redeemed us. It's actually in spite of all those things that he's done that. And so we're in a certain kind of desperate state, a desperate condition before him, that we need to seek Jesus and we need to seek repentance and forgiveness because we're desperate to be unified with God forever. That's why we repent on a regular basis, because we long for the unity that we can have with God, and sin gets in the way of that. But it's not often the case that we consider our sin as such a big separating factor between us and God, which causes us not to think of ourselves as too desperate, which causes us not to confess sin on a regular basis. Because we don't think of the sin as a big issue, we think we can still go before God, which we can, 
but we don't consider sin as we ought to, which means we don't pray and we don't confess our sin as we ought to, which leads to irregular and occasional prayer when we, cons- when we commit certain sins that are bigger, or big enough to really weigh on our conscience. But sometimes we go before the Lord in prayer, and I'm sure you've had this experience, as have I, where you go before the Lord and you think to confess a sin, and you think, oh, I don't have any sin to confess. And it's more a function of your own blindness to your own sin and your own selfishness than it is really a, a commentary on how good you lived in the last 24 hours. We're terrible judges of ourselves when it comes to sinfulness. So we can, we can consider sin as a, as a means of how desperate we are before God, and we can just look at how, how short we fall of really being as desperate as we ought to be. But if you were to expand it beyond the individual, because last week I, I mentioned that all the pronouns in this prayer are, are plural pronouns. They're, they're we, us, our. So if we think about the broad corpus of Christian disciples and all of the things that we have need for as a Christian body and community, and then recognize the fact that we don't think of ourselves as desperate as we actually are before God. When we're praying corporately for the body. If you were to consider just one small thing, for example, the fact that this world is so broken and there are still people who have not heard the gospel and don't have the gospel able to access them in their native language. And we've had 2,000 years of ingenuity and economic development and translations and, and all the rest, and there are still people out there who've never heard the gospel, who've never been reached for the kingdom. And when we pray out of a posture of desperation, should we not let that impact and, and spur on our cry when we say, your kingdom come, God, that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would know you. There's a certain desperation we ought to have that we don't have because we don't feel the weight of people who have not heard the gospel. It's not actively in our minds, so we don't think about it. It doesn't weigh on us as it ought to, and so we don't pray as we ought to for that kind of thing. But as a, as a corporate Christian body, as a, as a global Christian community, we have a desperation there that we need God to answer that we don't regularly pray for. You can even think about if you were to just narrow the scope, not broadly to the whole Christian body in the world, just to the Christian body, let's say, in, the, in America, in the West. And you were to say, well, what are things that we are desperate for and in, in great need of as Christians here in the West? And we think about the fact that if you were to survey Christians and non-Christians, and you were to observe the prevalence of pornography in culture, you would find no discernible difference between those who identify as Christians and those who identify as non-Christians. And you consider the fact that we don't feel the desperation of that kind of sin which has enslaved a whole culture of Christians. To the point where Christians and the world look exactly the same when it comes to struggling with a sin such as pornography. And we don't feel the desperation of that. We don't feel the urgency of that. So we don't, we don't pray for it. As long as we're in the clear and we don't struggle with that sin, we won't pray for it regularly and intercede for our brothers and sisters on their behalf so that the Christian body would be purified of the sin and the evil within its midst. We don't feel the desperation. We think that if enough Christians got help or got accountability, then that would take care of it. And we deny the fact that that would be a renewal of the spirit in someone's heart to cause them to no longer love the sin that they do love. That requires a certain beggar's posture before God to say, we are in desperate need of your intervention or else we have no hope. We can consider the sin struggle of the Christian global community like that. We can also consider, let's say, the Christian's impact in the world. 
And we can say that if we consider how God's kingdom comes, it's not just through holiness and people loving the gospel. It's also through the church living in the world in such a way that people feel the impact of God's beautiful kingdom and the world coming into submission to its right creator. And last week when we were meeting with uh, an individual from, from care communities, they shared with us a statistic that if every church in America adopted one foster child, foster care would be eradicated across our nation. And that, that includes big churches, small churches. If every church just adopted one kid, foster care would be gone like that. And then you consider the fact that foster care not only persists as a problem, but there are still people who can't find foster homes. And then you think about how the church has fallen so desperately short of bringing the kingdom into this world and letting people know that God loves them and cares for them. It would be one thing if there was so few churches that even if all of us adopted one child that we would not make a dent in the issue. That's not the problem, though. The problem is that churches don't feel the weight of that thing, and so they don't go after it. And so if people look at the church and they look at all the things that the church professes about the love of God and his care for people, and they look at how the church lives into the world, and they say, well, if this is true, that all the churches could take care of foster care, and yet foster care is a prevalent issue, the churches must not care about loving their neighbor well. And I'm not saying that foster care is the gospel, that's not what I'm saying, but, but there's a certain desperation that we should feel for the fact that that is a mar on our testimony as churches in the West when we don't love people and those who are most needy in our culture as we ought to love them. But we don't feel the shame of that, so we don't have a shameless posture before God when we go to ask him for help in these things. And there's a whole litany of things we could enumerate as things that we are in desperate need of God's intervention for because, like I said, every aspect of being a disciple is something we need God's intervention in into our lives. And I've just listed three things, one thing individually and two things corporately that we could regularly be in desperate uh, need of. And that's not to go into all of the other things that the church in the West could pray for, the church globally could pray for, and Christians individually could pray for. And now you see how it begins to add up how desperate and how much of beggars we are before God so that when we go to him in prayer and we have request after request, we should really never run out of things to ask God for. We should have a certain kind of impudence, a certain amount of boldness, a certain kind of shamelessness when we go to God in prayer because that reflects the reality of our condition before God. But not only should we have shamelessness, we should have a confidence because unlike the annoyed neighbor, remember, God is a loving father. And so it's not as though it's just our shamelessness that motivates him to answer our request. It's also the fact that he loves us and he wants to answer those requests. He's not sleeping in the middle of the night when you go to seek him and knock on his door. He's actually up and waiting for you. He's ready to hear you out. He actually wants to give you what you asked for and more than what you asked for. And he's just waiting for you to ask it. And here we have a better picture of what God is like. He's not like Baal where he might be sleeping sometimes. He's not like a God who's distant and far off. He's not some God who's unattainable and so far removed from humanity we cannot contact him. He's a God who actually actively seeks relationship with his people, and we have proof of that. You have a Bible in front of you that is God's word to you, his self-disclosed revelation of who he is, what he's like, and how you can have a relationship with him. We have Jesus Christ, who is a real historical person that we can point to and say, this is a manifestation of the love of God, 
who came down from his heavenly abode, emptied himself of his glory and his position of authority, and became like us, condescended to our weakness, and atoned for our sin. So we have a God who loves us so much that he would redeem us from all sin, and as Paul argues, how will he then not graciously give us all things? And we think, well, we can't ask God for that, it's too small, or we can't ask God for that, or we don't recognize our state, and we don't know who God is, because he loves to give his people all things. And then we consider not only our desperation, not only God's character, but also remember again, this is a recap from last week, but remember again, all of these requests are rooted in the things that God has already promised to give us. We don't ask God to make his name holy because we're concerned that it will or will not happen. We know that it will happen. So we can have confidence when asking him for it. We can ask God confidently to give us this day our daily bread because we have a certain confidence that he will answer that request. All of the requests that we ask of God are rooted in promises he's previously given to his people. And so it's not just our desperation that drives the request and answer. It's not just God's character and his love for us. It's also his, his holiness and the reputation of his name, which he stakes in the fact that he is able to fulfill the requests of his people. And that's not even all the motives Luke gives us in the text. There's, there's still, well, three more verses we have to get through to talk about all of the motivation that we have to pray, but we will have to save that for next week. So I would invite you now to close me and join me in prayer as we thank God for his goodness to us. Lord, we thank you that you give us access to your throne by means of prayer. I pray as we consider the words of Holy Scripture as they've been passed down to us and recorded for us and applied to our heart, you would help us to see our desperation before you, God. Would you help us to know that we are not only sons of you who have a place and an ear before your throne, but also, Lord, we are, we are in some ways beggars, desperate for your intervention into our lives. And so, Lord, would you make us aware of our need so that we would be motivated and spurred to pray and so that this world would feel the impact of your kingdom from the intercession of the saints and from your requests being answered over and over and over again by your never-ending gracious love. We thank you that we have these promises in you and that we have confidence when we pray to you, Lord. That is all your work, none of our own. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.